Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and good night, and welcome to another episode of Endurance Chat. I'm Michael Zalavari, and today I'm handing over the reins. Uh, our Asian Le Mans series review podcast is still in the works, but we didn't quite get around to finishing it this week. So Austin Zetsman and Oliver Trovis got together to chat a little bit about the state of endurance racing at the moment and all the news that have come to light in the last few weeks. Uh, before they crack into it, though, we've got to say thanks to the RacingLine.app, the personalized motorsport calendar. Never miss a moment of your favorite series with personalized notifications for your selection of sessions. Plan your weekends around your favorite series with the day and week views covering all major series all converted into your time zone search the racing line app on the ios store or head to the racing app for more info take it away lads Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, good night, everyone. Wherever you are in the world, welcome to another edition of Endurance Chat, this time hosted by yours truly, Austin Zetsman, a.k.a. Cookie Monster. Today, I'm joined by my favorite British person ever. Zero hyperbole there. <laughs> Ali Trevisaris. <laughs> How you doing, mate? Hello. Hello, hello. Oh, man, we were planning on this episode kind of being more of a recap episode of some previous events, but due to unforeseen consequences, circumstances, however you want to say it, this has almost turned into a state of endurance episode for the end of February here. So we're going to be talking about quite a bit of different news and notes throughout the entire endurance racing kingdom, we'll say. Um, and if we have some time, we might actually get to a recap. So we'll see where, where the chips lay from here. But I'm very happy to be joined by you, Ali, because we have some crazy news, I would say, out of the uh, ACO camp, the Lamar camp, and um, and really we can kind of expound from there. But to start, we have some updates. Glickenhaus basically completes their, uh, and sh- uh, their shakedown for their first chassis uh, for the LMH competitor, uh, direct competitor for this year for the Toyota GR010, who's already has their testing campaign well underway with a bunch of long-range tests. Um, And so we have some news on there. But then we also have the biggest elephant in the room, I'll say, for the WC in Le Mans ACO is uh, the Ferrari 2023 announcement for Le Mans Hypercar. Ali, did you honestly expect this to happen? Um, Based on certain tweets from certain... um people in the paddock uh or well not recently in the paddock but um because of the travel bans but um marshall pruitt kind of did kind of tease this uh quite a while ago um it's kind of been maybe a bit of a worst kept secret that something like this was going to happen um because of the you know this thing doesn't happen overnight this is a long-term plan that, that a lot of people have to agree with, you know, boards, that sort of thing. But um, it was certainly exciting. When <laughs> yeah, and there was, you know, we had heard in previous weeks that IndyCar um, was kind of trying to swoon a bit of Ferrari and that they were interested as well. And then that, that talks had ceased or that had kind of broken down and Ferrari had essentially said, no, we're not going to go IndyCar. So that kind of left that gap. And we all knew that the budget cap for Formula One was going to start being enacted where they were going to need to reduce or at least to shift some of that 
uh, financial and even administrative focus from Formula One to something else. And uh, just obviously with, with how COVID is and, you know, with the pandemic would be pretty of a negative connotation to see a lot of those, uh, you know, admins or even jobs go away um, because of that potential F1 cap uh, move or change adjustment. So you kind of thought the pieces were there and set together to really be this kind of announcement. But um, just speaking as an endurance fan forever and wanting to see Ferrari back you know, and I grew up looking at the five one two and the three one two, uh, even the P fours and you know the two fifties. So I knew the Ferrari legacy at Le Mans, and obviously the Ford versus Ferrari movie that came out recently. So Ferrari's just been in endurance chats, mentions, and all that for the last couple of years. It's just you don't want to get your hopes too high. And uh, man, boy, did they kind of deliver with that. And uh, enough said, as they said on their tweets. So um, just a lot of almost, reper- not necessarily repercussions, but discussions that can come from that. And really, the the main deal, the deal is obviously 2023. So we'll see them then. So that's still a couple of years away. Um, I personally like that just because of how these uh, factory prototype programs usually pan out for success. You know, you, you want to, do as much where you're building momentum into this program as possible. You have the right design, you have the right personnel, you have the right drivers and the car too tested. So this seems like a pretty sensible timeline to get them into uh, machinery to get that tested and get that ready for Toyota and Peugeot and Glickenhaus really for LMH and WC, uh, not to mention potentially other LMDH entries that could be in the WC uh, championship then as well. Uh, but really this is the first prototype that Ferrari is going to be making since the 333 SP back in the uh, late 90s. Um, And like I said, it's going to be 50 years essentially since their last uh, major uh, competitive bout at Le Mans. They're going to be coming right back to it. So, I mean, it's it's all kind of tied neatly into a bow here. And really, the uh, the thing that we get to do now is just to speculate how this team gets formed. And uh, they do have some uh, kind of higher up uh, officials, John Elkin, uh, basically making comments about that. But I don't know if we really know anybody technically that's going to be involved in this yet, obviously for drivers as well. I mean, we just had Charles Leclerc say that at the moment his main focus is Formula One, but if a chance comes, why not? And he loves Le Mans. So it's going to be very interesting to see who, uh, you know, who is all involved with this Ferrari program because really this is this feels like uncharted territory from like just a – almost like an, a Ferrari endurance standpoint. I'm, you know, do they go away? Of course. Um, and that kind of thing. Ali, what are your, what are your thoughts kind of on where their trajectory would be? And what would this mean for um, kind of the, let's say the, like the driver uh, breeding program, let's say in Formula One, like Red Bulls. Uh, and how does this maybe change that a little bit? So as we're moving to a balance of performance formula, um, Yes, sure, you want to show off that your cars are still the pinnacle of technology of what what's allowed um, because there's kind of a bit of a downgrade, but um, I digress. Um, and yeah, so if you want to show off um, the different angles of your brand or your company, you, you want to show off that your car is, is the pinnacle and they uh, uh, um, believe Le Mans Hypercar is that. Um, based on the, the 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 bigger freedoms that it allows, but also you want to show off your brand in terms of the driving talent, um, and whether that be uh, um, 
the young driver programs coming through and and showing that Ferrari is the best place to be. This is quite a valuable asset to have um, and and an outlet to have if you have a large driver program. Mm-hmm. Um, also, a, a prime example for this is Callum Eilat, who was kind of potentially snubbed a little bit um, based on his his pretty good performances in in f2 um to say the least mm-hmm. and <laughs> very very for him talented to, yeah for him to to not move up into to f1 is kind of like well where's what's he going to do then uh at the moment to stay within ferrari he can do some gt things which would be good for sports cars you know uh crash course as it were well hopefully with no crashing but um <laughs> no, it's ferraris and uh, <laughs> Exactly. Um, they're going to get crashed into. Um, um, and uh, yeah, so, you know, there there is a a broad base for Ferrari to apply their driver program. It may be the case that like we see in factory GT with factory GT programs, you have brilliant GT drivers going out to GTM uh, uh, pro-am formats. Uh, where you have uh, an affiliated pro driver, the same could happen if there's a, um, uh, a privateer buying a, a Ferrari chassis, let's say, that hasn't been ruled out. Mm-hmm. If, if for example, GT um, gets smaller and smaller uh, from 2023 onwards and the, the Ferrari package can be made um, available to customers to buy if you want something that will hold its value potentially go up in value be a potential you know um investor piece uh buying a chassis racing it and then owning it in a museum put it like ben keating put it in your front room Mm -hmm. you know that (laughs) that's something that could be viable and then you use you show off your your driver program um putting these uh drivers in these satellite programs you know mm-hmm. wouldn't it be wicked to have like a a fluorescent car guy ferrari le mans hypercar <laughs> now yeah it might be a bit shit if they've got a uh, a pro-am driver lineup but it's still pretty cool and it's kind of going into the old days yes. of some of these um gentlemen drivers that will uh, take it up in the top class um and this kind of broadening of the top class means it doesn't matter so much because there's going to be so many oems with their full factory that are going to be right at the the bleeding edge the knife edge of of the race so um yeah i think i think it's really exciting and i think too like what you touched on there too a little bit in terms of just that would be great. I mean, yeah, a car guy, Ferrari, Luma, hypercar would be nuts. But I think that that also um, shows that there's more, um, I guess, how you say for Ferrari showing more commitment a little bit to GT or at least endurance racing. And so I think if you see more of that actual investment in this category of racing in this, hey, that we believe that this that this series, that this this form of racing is viable and successful, and that's why we are committed into this. I think that you can also then attract more people into the brand just that by 
by just their level of commitments. I mean, how much did the uh, LMP1H program for Porsche, you know, I, again, I'd cultivate more, maybe more Porsche drivers or get more people into driving Porsche GTs that were more available to those kind of drivers than maybe an LMP1 ride. So, you know, there, that could be a ripple effect that comes from this, uh, this entry as well. Uh, I touched on it slightly with AF Corsa maybe running this, and I know in a lot of the comments we've been seeing on RWC and whatnot, there's been a lot of talk about just assumption that AF Corsa takes over the, maybe the factory role of this. Do you see that happening, or do you see this more staying in f- like a factory um, OEM effort, and maybe AF Corsa does a privateer LMH, or they stay in GTE, or do you think that they do take on the responsibility and role of being that de facto factory OEM program for Ferrari? I think it's a really good point. Um, so for the people who might not know, Ferrari don't want to do like a fully factory in-house GTE program, just like Porsche or, or kind of Aston Martin, but mainly Porsche are doing um, or have done um, because they aren't fighting for outright wins. So they're kind of doing it outsourcing it to a satellite company af course that they happen to be called also ferrari but mm-hmm. um completely unrelated so they say um and uh yeah i th- i think they're a prime candidate because they have that broad base of, of of being in the paddock and they have you know so much business in the gt world but on the other hand you know there are there are um so many people within Ferrari that need to be given work. Um, I think it's a, a a quirk in the Italian employment law, which says that they can't be gotten rid of for like no good reason, as it were, mm-hmm. kind of thing. So they have to be kept to do something from the Formula One team somewhere else. And it kind of aligns more and more that this is a fully factory program. But also, if you want to really do it properly and not half-ass it, then you're probably going to do a um, in-house factory program. You know, a team like Ferrari, they're going to be up themselves so much that they're going to believe that they're the best at doing it. Mm-hmm. You know, yep. Why would they give? Why would they outsource it to someone else if if they think they can do? It? a better job because you know they're ferrari they're the ego kind of thing um exactly you know that that uh clip from was it rush where um louder says it's a shit box and then the mechanic goes no it's a ferrari <laughs> can't say that's a ferrari <laughs> well hey and, and that's honestly i i would i will love the italian attitude of that and uh and to see them if they do succeed or fail i mean hey this is it's going to be entertaining for the fans through and through and i and again that that is that's a wrinkle that i'm extremely excited about um and i would have honestly just i would hope that it stays factory and that they don't try to like you know uh ran not necessarily ran by of course like everything is there but then they have a label on i would just rather it be from ferrari themselves and i think you're right i think that's how they're going to probably end up doing this um why do you think that sorry oh go ahead go ahead interrupt but the the way i think about this is um as well or the the way i look at their announcement is the the, de- the timing of it kind of feels a bit significant as well. Um, this kind of comes into 
Glickenhaus and and we'll we'll talk about them a bit later as mm-hmm. well yep. um potentially is the 2023 now the 2023 aspect is it that's going to be the centenary race mm-hmm. so everyone really wants to win that one yep, yep. if it, it, if they want to um turn up at, at 2023 and win it first time everything has to be right and they're going to take their time and do it right first time now that's difficult but if they join in it, it, too early and they rush it then because the homologation is locked in then they're going to be stuck basically yes yep so by it being 2023 they're going to have all of their ducks in a row everything is going to be perfect with a bow on it and then they're going to go out and they think they're going to win so do you think a rolling chassis by by this time next year or do you think it'll probably be a little bit later because i mean they've got two years to do this and i feel like i feel like how that and i feel like you're absolutely right and that's a that's a really great point uh, in terms of the significance of their first outing at lamar they're going to need to want to nail everything right and obviously with glickenhouse's um very open and vocal kind of uh uh, update progress of how they're essentially building their car and starting to get it ready for homologation literally you know now months away from potentially where they race at Le Mans it's a stark difference between you know what we've just said and kind of how Glickenhaus are doing it and I I wonder do you, yeah so what it's so hard to project right now but I would I would feel like almost by you would want to have by spring next year that they have some form of rolling chassis already ready to go but um, do you like where, how would you see, I guess, since they are projecting in two years to go, um, you know, would that make sense or what will be a feasible timeline for us to expect maybe them to have a product, a physical product, uh, rolling? So if you kind of look at the way Toyota have been talking about their development program and progress and timing, they are basically behind schedule mm. and, so you can kind of use Toyota's timings and kind of expand them slightly, mm-hmm. put a bit of a fudge factor on it, and then you can then say like, okay, they should be testing um, around this time, as it were. Um, so obviously everyone does it different. Uh, people design cars different different ways. They might have testing mules on their own in-house track earlier than Toyota because they've got more of a time window to play around with mm. test mules. Um, whereas Toyota had maybe more uh, of a um, requirement to get it right quickly and rush it, or not necessarily rush it, but you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Um, so they do have time to play with and they want to make sure that they get it right and and that incorporates a lot of testing um of of everything whether that be uh, engines on in on test rigs and doing endurance um simulations by just driving the engine for 36 hours mm-hmm. non-stop on a bench or whether that be in a car doing an endurance session again and again and again lapping 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 around a test track um That'll be yet to see. The same thing can be said for Peugeot um, with their their timing going into 2023 um, or potentially 
joining some races early if 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 the opportunity arises mm -hmm. i think the wec would be you know having open arms to these lamar hypercars <laughs> to be as early as possible um even if they're like a one-off um like toyota came early in 2012 uh, when peugeot pulled out um but the main thing the proper um attempt for the championship for le mans is 2023 yeah, man. And I just even you, you know, saying even with the Peugeot thing, it's just, oh, yeah, per Peugeot's here. You know, it's 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 still almost like a, you know, this is such huge news that, you know, not that it, it doesn't trounce or anything Peugeot, but there's, you know, that still element that there's a, another major factory program that has played such a huge part in the last 20 years of Le Mans um, and given us just some of the best Le Mans that I've, I've seen in a long time, they're, they're coming as well with their own timeline and strategy and how they're going to uh, perform. I mean, this is, this is, I mean, really, this is a vindication, I think for, for the hypercar class as a whole. And, and when we were definitely thinking it was on the ropes or at least that it didn't have a whole leg to stand on, um, this is, this is very, very, uh, you know, a pleasant news, I will say, just from somebody who definitely thought that that, that, category had a good reason to be here um so i mean and speaking of that so we can kind of a little bit maybe segue to the uh the lmh category as a whole does this kind of vindicate the class does, does this does this now go yes there was there this is something viable um and is there even something where we should maybe expect any more announcements in the future for potential lmh programs so i think it, it's a really good question and we'll have to wait until you know ferrari come out and say it but it's kind of out in the open that ferrari were willing to do the more hypercar because they think it, it there's a potential of of um maybe um perfecting performance better than an mdh but also they want to show off their technology they want to show off their design uh, and, and them being the best and the only way they can do that properly is with a, a full-on hypercar program mm -hmm. you look at like we mentioned the build process of the glicken house yes their budget is smaller but going into every nut and bolt the the detail that goes into it mm -hmm. compared to just taking a um spec items off the shelf um yeah, it, it's exciting. It 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 kind of puts um, more weight behind Le Mans hypercar. Yes, sure, it's pretty late, as it were, in the argument um, because of what we've gone through in the, the the history of convergence and that complications. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there are companies that like to showcase their technology, whether that be McLaren with their chassis, potentially wanting to do a Le Mans hypercar. That's the sort of feeling where you want to showcase your brand as being a technical powerhouse. You want to do that with Le Mans hypercar. If you want to showcase your brand as a badge, then you go and do LMDH. That I, I that's honestly 
about the best description that I've I've heard just in terms of a shorthand version of, of the difference between the two. And I, and I think both of them, you know, and, and not even from a derogatory standpoint, that's just the, you know, the nuts and bolts, you know, that's how a lot of these or, you know, announcements have been decided upon is because of that. And, and I think both of them have their own merit. And obviously LMH comes with its own risks in terms of putting yourself out there, being able to showcase your own prowess, might technology, you know, can come at the cost of doing it wrong and getting it wrong. So, you know, you have that risk. And, and I think that's too, why I, I like the Le Mans hypercar, um, category in general is just because that you have that ability to showcase your own creativity and you're right you're not you know and while spec parts are there for a a very very good reason especially in you know the 21st century where money is everything um you know it's it's awesome to see that there is still the opportunity for people to not necessarily ignore that financial part of it but push through regardless of it and to design and create their own thing that we've seen you know, for the like last 70 years racing at Le Mans. So uh, again, like I, I, that's where I, I definitely think that <clears throat> it's, this couldn't have come, I would say at a better time because I, I think LMDH is going to absolutely prove itself to be very useful um, and very uh, rewarding from that, that standpoint. Um, and even with the Peugeot announcement, I still feel like you have the potential for Toyota, Peugeot, Glickenhaus, um, and maybe Alpine if they decided to to continue their program into Le Mans Hypercar to showcase their own effort. But with Ferrari, it kind of goes, you have a lot of giants on one side of the, of the court saying that this is the strategy they want to use. And then you have a lot of giants in the other category saying this is the strategy they want to use. And they all seem to be in the same area almost at the same time. And we're just kind of almost waiting for potentially IMSA to get one season of LMDH out of the way before they go, okay, boys, come on, come on over, have some fun at, you know, at Daytona and Sebring with us. Um, and I feel like that, that potential almost looming horizon for some of those uh, marks as well can be a huge boon for both IMSA and WEC. And so I feel like, again, you know, it, it's weird when I, I think we started talking about this where IMSA was like, nope, we're still going to do our own thing. And it was just kind of like, well, why can't we ever, you know, all work together? And I just, you know, and I, even with this, you know, those two announcements, I just didn't think that we were going to get the levels of commitment on both sides that we kind of almost have right now. And I mean, I'm like, I'm just so pleasantly chuffed, I guess, just to, just to even be having this discussion, you know, for LMH versus LMDH. And you could almost say both of them are successes already. Granted, we still don't have a ton of cars on track and we don't even know what the LMP2 cars, uh, mother chassis look like for their, for 2.0, but, um, it's just nothing but exciting. And I mean, I would, I would rather be talking about this stuff than talking about program closures or, you know, tightening belts and not seeing cars on track. So, uh, I just think the future is really, really bright right now for endurance racing, despite the fact that we don't technically have full convergence set with IMSA. Um, and then to update with that, speaking of, uh, John Doonan was uh, quoted as saying, "Just no update at this time for IMSA with LMH uh, inclusion in their in their championship." Um, so I I thought that, that that kind of and I think in some of the chats too in Discord and, and on RWC's Discord and comment sections uh, on the sub, I think some people were kind of pointing at that being where that LMDH wanted to get maybe a full season of their category and maybe BOP and, and just see where they the chips lie on their side first before letting LMH in. Um, and I kind of agree with that. Do you do you agree too, or do you think that do you think we might see a, a IMSA allowing LMH announcement before twenty twenty three? I think there there would be an announcement, but I don't think that there would be inclusion uh, just yet. Mm -hmm. um, 
I think they want to not only um, get their their house in order with the LMDHs and get that up to speed. I think they also are a bit maybe worried about uh, the potential, the probable potential of a Le Mans hypercar being the better option in a balance of performance formula because you get those freedoms to perfect uh, things that you might not be able to by taking spec components from LMP2. Um, and it, it, on the other hand, if you look at WEC, if they accidentally let um, Le Mans hypercars happen to be just a little bit faster and they're still trying their best to, to be OP um, and, and get it all um, dialed in, if an LMH happens to win, that doesn't matter so much. But with IMSA, if they try and get so close to a perfect BOP, but is still a Le Mans hypercar winning, that's going to be more of an embarrassment. So they're going to probably, because of this data sharing, um, probably within the arrangements, is take the hypercar after a few years and, and after a, a, a few, um, some time sharing the racetrack in WEC between an LMDH and uh, LMH chassis, then using this then data, then they can set up their balance of performance algorithms to um, maybe give LMDH a, a fighting chance. Um, now, that's me speaking with my biases on uh, which chassis I prefer, <laughs> but it, it shows that there is a potential, you know, bit of difficulty that they've got. I'm not a fan of the uh, IMSA balance of performance since I've started watching them. Uh, I'm, I have a lot more faith in the WEC auto BOP system that's mm -hmm. currently used in GTE Pro. Um, whether they let the politics take over because it's for overall wins uh, with a lot of money on the line, maybe. Um, but uh, at the moment going into it, um, yeah, I think I've got a lot more faith in the auto BOP process. Hopefully that that's taken across the Atlantic and used as well. I think that would help so much um, in the quality of racing. Mm -hmm. But um, yes, that is still a glaring, um, glaringly, it's glaringly abs absent from um, ever since Convergence uh, that, that Hypercar were getting a rough side of the deal not being able to race in america um and you know if it comes out that um the lmh can't race in america then that's a quite a big sacrifice for ferrari because they're they're they have a lot of brand value in the u.s um their brand equity is is huge you know everyone knows ferrari um Especially it's a large, in, it's a large, it's a largest auto, uh, automotive market, I think, for sales, I believe, still. I mean, it was for like the last decade. It might have changed, but uh, the North American market has been some of the most successful for Ferrari's brand. I mean, 
you know, I would even say the last 20 years too. It's, it's an extremely well-known and popular brand in the U S and only for the, for the aspect that it's not a muscle car and it's the most, you know, widely European known sports car. You know, you think of sports car, Porsche, Ferrari, it's that kind of deal. Um, but Ferrari's just has that opulence. It has that name that has that name recognition too. So, and, and again, to your point, I think, I think IMSA has <clears throat> more, a little bit more that they have to lay these chips on the table for their own teams um, and for their own uh, factory efforts and then also for WEC because, I mean, you know, we, we've looked at um, the day 2024 even and, you know, this past year we've had a different chassis winner finally and it's been Cadillac that's been dominating and we've said almost for like the last two three years it's because that Delara chassis is good. Uh, you know, it's, it has a good straight line speed. It's got good stability there. The Cadillac's uh, torque, uh, low end torque with their V8 is extremely good with the, the GM uh, factory powerhouse behind it. So there's strengths for that seemingly specific track, whereas you'll see maybe the Cadillac's not perform as well at mid Ohio or, you know, even road America, something like that, where, you know, there maybe the strengths don't lie as much there, but um, where we see the ACO and WC kind of have to put in a little bit more of a, this is how we're doing this BOP uh, for Lamar specifically with their Lamar test day. And yes, they, you know, they've even had their own controversy with that. Um, I feel like there is a, a part of it where, they are acknowledging that it is such a unique and different race and that they do have to establish, you know, a very valid and honest BOP process with this, that it, it does ease and calm a bit of fears from all parties that are being involved. And I do feel like you're right. If we do get to a point where IMSA wants to potentially include LMH, they've got to put in there either so that when, you know, these teams show up that they're not going, okay, well, what, what do we have or what are we working with? What, what hill do we have to climb? And I feel like IMSA would do a whole lot of good to establish which hills WC teams have to climb over in order to win and obviously not be too crazy. But I, I do still, you know, I, I do feel that that would be an honest or at least a more approachable way for IMSA to include LMH is that they are, you know, even almost more upfront with how their process works than the ACO is with theirs. Again, because the ACO doesn't, you know, for for all of what we've known over the last, you know, 10, 20, the entire entirety of ACO is that they really, they believe in Lamar and they believe in their, in their brand and product. And that they know that that is going to just exist, you know, until we, I guess, stop using automobiles as a decent form of transportation. So, um, you know, it's, it's, it, there is definitely a onus. I think that IMSA will have to even prove not only to LMH teams, but LMDH teams that, they have a very solidified plan in place for how they want to categorize performance between the two categories. So, yeah, I mean, that is, that's going to be something to look at too. And again, yeah, you said it's a, it is a glaring hole we'll say in the LMH LMDH kind of convergence discussion. And for all the LMDH to Lamar, there is that gap where you don't really see, or this discussion of LMH to Daytona yet, which I think both of them should be there and Sebring. I mean, um, just from the endurance standpoint and Ferrari's own commitment and their own history at Sebring too. I, I feel like there is that gap that in that calendar year for endurance racing, that would be difficult to see if LMH isn't uh, included in those months. So it's, I can it's, see them doing full season. Yeah. You know, if you think of, yeah, sure. They might be in a bit of a low period right now, but you've got the, the history of a team uh, like Reese and and um the history of ferrari in north american motorsport you know there is 
history there to um, build on. And like I mentioned before, yeah, maybe it might be not a fully factory effort, but the value of these Ferrari hypercars mm. for an investment, but also, you know, to go racing with Ferrari is pretty cool. Um, <laughs> th there is, uh, you know, uh, enough behind that to have uh, a full season Ferrari racing in the top class of IMSA. And two, uh, you know, and again, expounding with the Sebring stuff, you, I mean, we, there's there's so much history that I feel like a lot of sports car and uh, American sports car fans, you know, their progression of understanding and learning endurance racing, if they go back a few years, you know, there's so many instances where it's, uh, you know, Ferraris involved um, in, you know, in some of these notable races or notable finishes. I mean, we'll talk about 2007's 12 Hours of Sebring, where it was Porsche and Ferrari banging doors to the line to win the GT class. Um, and then the whole Steve McQueen uh, saga in 1970 with the 908 and, you know, basically whether or not they actually did win or for Mario Andretti's Ferrari, you know, 512 that he ended up jumping into after his broke down and ended up passing with a couple, you know, with minutes to go with the race, won the race. And it's those kind of races that a lot of people have images of, we'll see, read articles about. And it's, I think that the history that you can absolutely mate with the current modern edition of that. And again, where you've the unseen levels of commitment for 50 years with Ferrari, I think is nothing to shake, uh, to, to ignore or shake away. And I, that would be, again, that's something too, that I wasn't really thinking about if they wanted to try to make a Reezy <clears throat> or at least make something esque of that. And of course, uh, a privateer team to try to run in the U.S. or somebody that's committed, you know, in the U.S. right now. That is, hey, Ferrari's available. I'm grabbing one of them if I can. I'm racing it. So I, I'm I, I would be beyond excited to see something like that. And even if it's not the factory team, just to have a Le Mans hypercar that's a Ferrari racing at Daytona or Sebring would just, I think, would would do so much for uh, you know sports car racing in the U.S. Uh, just from even an advertisement standpoint. I mean, that's that's just. I mean, you're striking gold right off the gate there. I think so. Uh, man, I can't wait to talk more about this with you later on. And I feel like we'll have another one or two episodes with more information coming from Ferrari and, and from the LMH category, potential, you know, more words from John. More Dunn. OEM. Yep. Yeah. More maybe. OEM. <laughs> Fingers crossed on that. Um, man, we've been talking a lot about that, but I want to kind of shift gears slightly, if, if you will, Ali, and let's talk a little bit of the ACO territory, maybe something slightly a bit controversial and definitely got a lot of comments talking on the sub. Uh, uh, the Michelin Le Mans Cup for 2021 has a new regulation out, um, and it's called the Bronze Plus, uh, well, I'll say penalty. And essentially what it is is there's a 20-second penalty or a 50-second penalty if you are like a half or three-quarters of the speed or something into your a silver driver's rated time established. So essentially it would be a bronze rated driver that comes into a race and starts lapping in the almost silver ranked times. And depending on how fast that is, uh, he would be then doled a 20 second stop and hold penalty during his next pit stop to essentially penalize the uh, the overspeed uh, based on his driver rating. And this got a lot of criticism from some of the comments. And I'm curious, this, uh, Ali, your opinion on this new uh, regulation for Michelin Le Mans Cup. I am probably in the minority, but I'm kind of okay with it. 
um to be honest <laughs> you know yeah sure i i it's a it sucks if you're a driver that's been given this penalty um but what are you going to do you're going to constantly beat your opponents um maybe they will relish the the, the extra challenge mm-hmm. um before uh, being upgraded to uh, a better uh, driver rating um in this case up to silver um just looking at it in a purely robotic analytical view when you would think about driver ratings um which are kind of like a lesser of two evils as it were um you you have different zones or bands that you put drivers in to um make the racing fairer uh and and more equal across the board um if you uh, have those bands quite wide you have a lot of range for the different drivers talents to fit within um and the broader you make that range and the band and and the more drivers you fit in there the 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 less equal it's going to be because you're going to have one person who's at the 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 top end of that band of driver rating going up against someone at the bottom of that band and they're going to be wildly different but on paper racing isn't raced on paper but they're supposed to be the same so if you increase the number of bands then you should increase the equality because you're having a more representative band for that driver mm-hmm. in the most part um now obviously the it's never perfect uh, and it, it, you you can overcomplicate things you know if you have 10 bands of driver rating then <laughs> it gets really com- complicated mm-hmm. um but it's a tough job uh, i don't envy them but this is the way that they're going about it and they're making in my uh, opinion they're trying to make an improvement in the fairness of the sport Mm-hmm. And yeah, sure, it might not be everyone's favourite, but um, the motive behind that is good. Um, it, it it sucks if you are given a penalty for um, being a legitimate amateur driver that is doing their bit to get faster, to hopefully get um, maybe to become professional, uh, only to be held back. But on the other hand, you know, you've got other people who are spending a lot of money who um, want to be able to compete. And um, if you are at the lower end of a driver ra- uh, driver ranking band, um, you're not going to be performing that well um, on on average. You know, you look at... David Heinemeyer Hansen is a great example. Yes, yep. He, in a prototype, was great. You know, he, as a silver, as the amateur driver in an LMP2 format, brilliant. And then for some reason, in the GTE, when he moved to Project 1 with the Porsche, 
he was kind of in the middle uh, or at the bottom of the silver band. And especially when he's going up against kind of factory backed young drivers that are going to be soon pros, they're going to be at the top of the, the band. Now, if you take away the argument that those young drivers shouldn't be silvers, um, which, you know, fair play, um, he would, if, if there was some measure, then he would be more um, competitive in the race. So, you know, if you think about certain drivers that may be at the lower band that still want to get better, this is helping them to not be discouraged by racing in these pro-am formats. Um, it's clunky. It's awkward. Um, they're going all in on their way of doing things, which some people aren't happy about, but it's their house. It's their rules. Mm -hmm. <laughs> oh, you made, you made almost every single point that I, I wanted to make. So, <laughs> so it's uh, unfortunately no, no controversial opinions here from both of us. I think, uh, I mean, I'm very much in agreement with you. Um, and to clarify, I just actually did look at this. So it's lapping in the third and fourth quarters of the silver spread. So kind of like your bands, um, essentially when they hit, uh, in that silver driver, they have a, you know, scale spread. If they hit in the th top third category, they'll get 50, 50 second penalty in the fourth quarter. They'll get a 20 second penalty of that spread. So that's, that's where their, their logic comes from. And I totally agree. And my, my angle really from this is that, um, you know, if you take a look at what sports car racing is doing, and unlike a lot, almost any other sport that you'll see out there, is that there's an inclusion of amateur uh, uh, competition uh, with professional uh, competition. And the way that they're trying to include the amateur, in, 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 I'll just say from, again, from a sports car standpoint too, is that a lot of the amateur drivers are supplying a lot of the funds for some of the even professional efforts that are being, that we, that we see and enjoy. So there is a part of this where you, you cannot ignore the M side of it from even a monetary standpoint. And nevertheless, from just a, Hey, we're enjoying the, the, the series. We're enjoying the atmosphere. We're enjoying the company. Um, so there is a part of this where you need to, you, you need to listen to those to those um, to both of those sides, but you also kind of need to try to make an even playing field and to uh, bring all of those people in to say, "Hey, I have a shot at winning this." And I think that is such a powerful tool to keep a lot of these uh, teams and drivers going um, when you don't have those traditional mechanisms like a Formula One, a NASCAR, WRC, a lot of these other ones where it's there is a very strict. It's at the top, it's pro, and then as you work your way down, there's less pro and less pro, and then you start to get into amp somewhere, but it's all a, a top-down financial ladder, too, where you, you know, it is the top ones are spending, and, but it's all assumed that people are going to be spending around the same, and you'll have that interest all the time. I think what the ACO have shown, especially with the lean years that we've had over the last 30 years uh, in, in, in international endurance racing, and even with the SRO series, is that if you can create a, a competitive championship in which you have competitors from all aspects of, of racing and driving and backgrounds to go, hey, I have a shot at competing with this, or I have a, I have a shot at being very entertained by participating in this event, that is extremely powerful from a uh, um, just a 
staying power for that series. And, I mean, we've seen the growth of ELMS, Asian Le Mans series, um, and even the Le Mans Cup, where, like, these grid counts, I, I don't know if we would have been saying five years, five, six years ago that we would have seen that, especially with the Asian Law series. Um, and I feel like it, there is a lot of that is based on these driver ratings and based on the ability for you to, to say, hey, look, I'm not that good of a driver compared to uh, Sean Galeel or uh, you know, a Bloomquist or somebody like that. But the way that the series lays out um, those skill levels is that I can pair up with some with a couple other people like that and to bring, you know, and for me to be my own X factor. And so I feel like with this bronze and silver issue that people are saying, okay, well, they can't hit to silver length. Well, it's not, it, it's not about necessarily those pro drivers or those guys that are really, really trying to step up their game and whatnot. And also to that end, I mean, if we do hit that where we have three or four guys this year that are constantly hitting that, then yeah, I think the ACO needs to look at, okay, maybe halfway through, let's reassess driver ratings, or we can do another bronze test. We'll have two bronze or silver tests a year, one after Lamar, one preseason prologue or something like that, where you have the ability to essentially move up a rank if you need to, if you're hitting this issue. And I, I think that there are, it's a complicated way to try to resolve a complicated problem in which you do have amateur drivers with tons of money that can get shut out by the understandably up and coming silver rated 17 year old who's coming from open wheel that wants to now switch to endurance racing. And I think both of them have an absolute you know, right to be on that track. It's just, I think giving it, the right, um, I don't know, savory notes for both of them to find uh, a reason to race there uh, year after year. And and again, I think that as much as we want to complain about the driver ratings, I think that that has honestly helped to keep a lot of AM uh, drivers and a lot of AM teams still competing and still wanting to show up and still wanting to find sponsors and and to find funding for these programs year after year. I, I genuinely think that. And so you know, fine, this might be a little bit teething. It might not look great to be, to begin with, but I think that this is a, it's a good idea. And I, I don't think it'll go beyond maybe the bronze and silver areas where we're seeing penalties like that. But I think for how, how much we need the amateurs in this sport, this is absolutely will, will ease a little bit of fears. I think for some of them who can genuinely have a gripe with, uh, with some of the discrepancies and lap times between some bronze and some silver drivers that we would consider am. And, uh... the, yeah, the the ACO they need to show that they're they're trying, they're doing something. Mm-hmm. They need to 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 give confidence in those amateurs that that feel aggrieved by you know some drivers that pretty much break the system. You mentioned these super silvers. Um, it, it 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 it's kind of part of the game now is to find a driver that breaks the driver rankings mm-hmm. system. Yep. So this is the kind of uh, reply to that um and this then comes uh, a question to you then is this just in the more amateur focused at the bottom rung of the aco ladder as it were mm-hmm. or do you think this is like a soft launch to gauge opinion and to see if it works to then move up to potentially elms where mm-hmm. we've historically seen some ridiculous super silvers that then go on to um, perform really well at the 24 Hours of Le Mans or maybe even go up to the WEC or, or Asian Le Mans series where right. we saw some ridiculous super silvers. Mm, yes. So that's, and again, I see that's where I think that that's, it's, I think that's where the trajectory is going. And I mean, slippery slope 
you could say from there because it, you know I, again i i think it will it'll depend on how successful or unsuccessful i guess that this this is um in terms of uh you know uh, maybe trying to uh realign or just you know uh, correctly align some of these driver ratings because again i mean now you have teams and drivers that are going to be not necessarily second guessing but they're going to, they're going to be having a focus more on what is your pace what is your potential you know output here you know how much of an advantage can we really take from you if we potentially can get penalized from you and i think that you know there is a wrinkle there that can deter potential drivers from going here or there but then again it puts the onus more on some of these drivers and teams to have to pick out the right drivers and where they're not trying to find that x factor super silver all the time to really you know benefit from a you know a flawed driver rating we'll say so i, I honestly do see this potentially going to elms asian law series and wc and i was thinking maybe because we're doing lmp3 and gtd i i, I don't i think this both counts for the both categories um that you know will this expand to lmp2 and could you go that way i i, I do think so uh, especially when you are um, especially with the Asian Law Series, where you do have that bronze factor in almost every category, uh, I think this will be something that the ACO tests here, and then will look to probably push to their other series, uh, regional or international series, potentially there too. And again, I until I start seeing uh, true negatives from this, where you have teams and drivers actually have a, a you know a, a genuine complaint from just maybe how they uh, how this is implemented. I just think that this is a good thing, and this this keeps and forces these drivers and teams to be honest with uh, their their driver lineups and and what their expectations are and who they're looking at potentially bringing on to their team based on their actual you know ranking. We'll say amateur professional ranking based on these driver ratings. I, I think that this might, this just gives a more clear opportunity for these teams to do that. So yeah, I, I do see this potentially expanding to uh, other ACO products um and again until otherwise seen i think that that is a good thing too i think that that just gives more confidence in the uh in the in the competitors that compete in those respective uh, championships for some that are then um the, the counterpoint to that um is just for those drivers that might feel aggrieved or teams that might feel aggrieved mm -hmm. that you know if for example g drive if they um Right. felt that they're aggrieved for for um following the rules at the time and getting a super silver and then suddenly being penalized for it what's um to say they won't then go to imsa mm -hmm. and just say screw it we'll go to your comp competitor you know mm -hmm. um so there's a fine line um, that has to be tread by the the the, the ACO uh, to get it right or as close to right as possible because on the one hand you've got amateurs who are going to pull their money and teams are going to not have work and people are going to lose their jobs because yeah. some amateurs feel aggrieved mm -hmm. but on the other hand you might go too far and piss off some of your top competitors and they'll pull out and go somewhere else and so so yeah to, it's a to, fine line and to your to your saying too so i'm thinking about this as well so you know we could have where there are still team strategies that yeah, come into play um you have the more pro drivers or silver gold drivers that are on a team that are uh maybe going from a 
they start the race and they're on fresh rubber, that kind of thing. And then when they box and put in the AM driver, sure, it might be much more tricky for that AM driver. But if they're on worn tires with maybe a full fuel load, that's going to cause a play uh, for their speed to be lower. You'll also see maybe where, you know, traffic they or even weather where that these teams are going to maybe potentially just try to massage some of these maybe bronze plus drivers that would be penalized in a normal scenario to put them in a disadvantage where they there's no way for them really to show their full or raw pace to hit that silver uh, that silver rating as well so you could just still see teams where they're trying to work around this issue while still having the problem you know that this is supposed to fix which is to try to remove um, that disparity of, of, of performance or pace from these drivers. So, uh, you know, you, that's a great point. And I think too, with the, with the G drive, they would probably be the, the, the thing that I, the, the team that I would think first off, cause that's really the team that a lot of people just know from the get go when you say super silvers or, um, you know, trying LMP2, trying to win everything in any way possible. That's the team that I would think the most of. And I think that they would be affected the most by this kind of thing, especially with, how Rusinov seems to be in terms of his driving pace. So uh, great. I mean, great, great point. And I think it's, I don't think it's all sunny in terms of this decision to be made, but I, I think that there should be, there should be a, a curiosity to whether or not that this is in the right direction, or if this does address some of the concerns that some of these amp drivers were having over the last few years, which it's definitely starting to grow, get a little bit more vocal with that. So um, yeah, great, great points. And I will see, I guess, how this works out and plays out and we'll see how many of these penalties are get issued, uh, this year. I do have a feeling what we, we should see them. I don't, it'll be interesting to see where, what teams are affected or uh, what running order kind of shifts because of this. Um, but yeah, great, great topics. The last thing I think that we'll cover today, and I don't know if we'll actually get to any recaps, which is kind of a good because we're almost doing a state of the uh, state of endurance, like I said earlier. Um, we're going to talk a little bit IMSA, and I wanted to get your thoughts on the GTE experiment that is uh, is coming to a close uh, over in the North American market. Um, IMSA announced for during the day 2024 weekend that they're shifting from GTLM, which is the GTE equivalent from the ACO that they were running, which Corvette uh, is famously running in. Uh, currently, they're going to shift to a GT3 format, GT3 Pro. So a little bit like the SRO categories for Spot 24, Nurburgring 24, where you have GT3, well, let's say AMS, and the GT3 Pro category, where you have more professional drivers racing GT3 uh, homologated or uh, configuration equipment. What are your thoughts on this, Ali? And uh, I guess where do we go here for GTE? Um, it's a shame. Um because you know it's it's a downgrade in terms of going from the pinnacle of gt racing um which the north american scene has had quite a lot of mm-hmm. uh, in history with the um, gt2 and things like that mm. um yeah it's a shame um there, there's less variety on the grid as well because you're just taking the cars from gtd and putting pro drivers in them um but um, there, there may be more, you know, uh, excitement. Um, there's more buzz in in having um, pro teams. But uh, another thing, on the other hand, is it's kind of shooting themselves in the foot a bit because you're giving an OEM an easy way out 
from sp- for spending less mm-hmm. compared to going into LMDH. You know, this is why the ACO has been hold, holding, holding off so long in terms of their um, uh, GT changes that may or may not be happening on the horizon. Um, if you give uh, an easy way out for an OEM to spend less to do a branding exercise, well, they're just going to, you know, do the cheaper option because we're in a pretty tough time at the moment financially. Mm-hmm. Just do a GT3 program. Easy. Um, yeah, I, I I think there would be um, good opportunities in America for certain brands. You know, you think Porsche, Acura, Ferrari, we mentioned them before. Um, then there, there's the, the chance of Mercedes doing a pro um, outfit, for example. Mm-hmm. Um there will be growth, but on the other hand, it's a it's also a step down in terms of um, variety of of car, um, and um, having uh, the pinnacle of GT racing in IMSA. Great and yeah, very good points. I, I mean, and a couple of things I wasn't even thinking about too, just from a um, you know participation and just and and not needing to take the you know, spending more and taking that a little bit easier route. I know IMSA's, I think their angle too with this is the, um, the participation, uh, fee to race in IMSA. So once that's already fulfilled and that, you know, if you have enough interest, basically if you, if you make something exciting enough for OEMs to go, yep, I'm going to spend a million bucks so that I have the opportunity to race in here, you know, then that obviously opens up uh, opportunities for teams to go, okay, I can now race in here. And because you have a category that is, so widely known um, throughout international uh, endurance racing with the SRO GT3 platform, um, you do have the ability to include a lot of different um, interest and talk and people that would be uh, willing to maybe spend more money here. Again, I, my, my fears are the same with you, is that I, while we do see this kind of quote-unquote fix the GTLM, you know, the professional GT problem that we seem to be having in IMSA uh, these days, I I think it opens the door for uh, less, uh, yeah, I want to say less uh, factory involvement in terms of uh, commitment to, you know, trying to really push their own uh, brand image or technology, that kind of thing in GT racing as a whole. I think that GTE was a bit of more like the prototype GTs that I kind of grew up watching. And, uh, you know, and I think that you do lose a factor in a part of that. Um, you know, the, the thing is, is that I don't know if, if, if that will really matter too much to fans because they will just see a lot of close racing. And I think if they do nail the BOP or at least that, um, you know, the, how GTD category has been pretty, somewhat successful i'd say i mean you know the lexus program has done a lot of you know uh winning we'll, we'll say over over that the course of two years um but you know how much has that elevated them to go step up to do uh you know nurburgring 24 like a you know a, a equivalent effort there or spa 24 or you know how much people have been wanting them to step up into prototype racing and do lmdh and do dpi and they have just sat in here and done this and kind of collected their their acclaim and their marketing 
um, you know, stats from GTD. And so I feel like this also opens the door for people to not want to look to anywhere else because they can take this very, I won't say cheap, but it's a very, it's a very understandable, very kind of controlled and tight or an already established uh, format that they can step into and try to immediately grab a claim. And so while I see that as being a positive, there is that aspect where you do lose um, really the ability for teams and or manufacturers to really want to stay in this category to win other than we just think we have a shot to win these races and to you know plaster that on a poster so granted i mean that's mostly everybody but um no i i agree i i just i that i do think weirdly that it, this doesn't seem like a it, this seems a weird imsa move because of how They've really been DPI and LMDH and all that. They've wanted their own marketing brand and that stuff. And I feel like with GT, this seems more of a quick fix than an actual fix to their problem, which is just GT factory or GT professional involvement in North America, which seems to be lacking for the last 10 years. Yeah, and I think they can't get away with with their BOP system with so few uh, cars in, mm. in a in a class mm -hmm. they can't get away with a race with bad bop or like two races in a row with bad bop yep. because there are so few cars to to get close racing with with bad bop like if you have six oems each with two cars and half of them have bad bop you're still going to have a good race at mm -hmm. the front whereas if you've got two oems and half of them have bad BOP. You're just going to have two cars, uh, one OEM up the road, uh, and then the other one just doing nothing at the back. So um, they needed to make a move. Um, I think it's too early. Uh, and it it also screws over Corvette. Yeah. Because their yep. shiny new C8 that seemed to be doing all right. Um they they don't have a long term uh, ability to race in America with it in its current form. Um, yeah, they, they need to do a lot to it to make it into a, a GTD eligible vehicle. Um, but at least we are seeing it um, still move overseas to do the um, World Championship in what? Mm -hmm. Yes. And so speaking of, um, we'll do a quick little, uh, let's say, state of WC right now. Um, and speaking of Corvette, they are going to be racing at Portimao. Um, and they're, uh, they're set to contest basically the uh, Portimao and Spa before Le Mans. So they should be doing those three races uh, this spring in the WC calendar. Um, and they will be joined by 31 other cars um, uh, with uh, obviously the main, uh, main contenders for uh, hypercar class for the next, you know, foreseeable future. Toyota having their two cars um, going to be on the grid, uh, but we are not going to be seeing the uh, the Glickenhaus uh, 007 hypercars. And uh, they just had their uh, let's say shakedown in the last week. Um, they're still planning on doing a 30-hour test, um, which is supposed to happen soon after the Portimao date, which is their reason for not being at that first round for that eight-hour uh, contest. Um, so is there as, as a, let's say a, a David fan versus Goliath, is there anything to note, to be concerned about? Obviously 
because it's David, you got to be concerned about that anyway. But I guess what are your thoughts on the Glickenhaus effort so far with her shakedown and obviously missing that first round? What do you, where do you see them at at the end of this calendar year? So I, I wouldn't be too scared about it. Um, you know, if we think about uh, no shows from LMP1, that's kind of a bringer of doom in terms of the, the those programs, you know, that, that shines a light on know financial problems or the team doesn't want to race for example with um team lnt and stuff like that (laughs) Um, (laughs) you know this this isn't a um a sign that the the entry is a vaporware or whatever um or they've run out of money or something like that this is more to do with the homologation is locked in they can't make any changes. It's not a pure prototype format anymore where you can make adjustments mm-hmm. um, race to race. They have to make sure it's right and locked in. And to do that, they need to turn up to the homologation with a car that they feel is perfect. Now, that takes a lot of testing uh, and that needs to correlate um, all of their design work that they've done on computers and in those clever italian heads (laughs) to make sure that that car is right um if they need to make any adjustments or go back to the drawing board they're going to do it so long as they turn up to le mans um with the car or, or, or spa with a car that they feel is right they'll do it um so yes they they still have a lot of work to do um they've only at the moment as we know um or for all we know, they've built one car. They need to test it a lot. They need to take it to uh, a wind tunnel. I believe there will be the Sauber wind tunnel, um, which is handy because they've already been there with their uh, models in the design process mm-hmm. um, because they were supported by Sauber. Um, and they then need to tick all the boxes that the car is legal to race and become a, a proper, fully-fledged uh, Le Mans hypercar. Um, I think we need to exercise some patience because they want to make they want to do it right. You know, if they turn up to Portimao and it's a little bit shit, that's locked in for the rest of the year. Yep. yep. And there's very limited things that they can do with their unless it's a a, a chassis setup issue because then they can adjust that. Um, but if it's something wrong with the fundamental design of the car or the aerodynamics or something like that, there's nothing they can do and they're stuck. Yep. Um, and and it, it's good for the ACO to allow them to do this because then they'll get a, a fairer, more broad fight at the, in the top class. Um, uh, so, yes, uh, we should also mention that on the entry list for Portimao, the, the Toyotas haven't... Um, been homologated yet They're, they have an asterisk subject to homologation mm-hmm. um, so uh, that still needs to be done and it kind of gives you a, an indication of how long it will take to get these cars homologated in time mm-hmm. um, but yeah if you forecast the the time taken from Toyota's first tests which were months ago and Glickenhaus is only just starting now. You can kind of forecast um, into the future when we'll see them racing. Hopefully it'll be for Spa. 
because that's a really good place for them to do um, high speed um, prep for mm. the yep. 24 hours of Le Mans. Um, they really need to do uh, a competition before the the big 24. Um, so yeah, sure. It, it, it sucks that they aren't going to the first round and the first round is a bit, um, has a bit of a shine taken off it. But, um, on the other hand, I mean, the other classes, uh, especially the pro-am classes, they look great. And uh, so more camera time on yeah. <laughs> the other classes. That's Thir- not a bad thing. 13 GTMs, man, that's going to be, uh, pretty nuts just just for the amount of you know in 18 total gt cars uh compared to the 14 uh lmps that are going to be competing or lama hypercar slash prototypes that are going to be there too so it's going to be a great kind of mix of cars and yeah you're right it's going to be a little bit lacking for portamao and maybe for spa as well uh but for people that are thinking that he might not be at lama i mean he's saying that uh, or two cars. He's he's saying that he'll. You could bet your kidneys that we'll be there with two cars. So Jim's in his bombastic tone as usual. Uh, once uh, is I guess betting kidneys that he's going to have both of his cars at Le Mans. So and I think too for their saying in logistical and travel restrictions with key parts being delayed for the build and all that. And again with your your points from allegation, I think that this is this isn't great news, but this is better than than uh, you know basically them rushing this and trying to get this into homologation too quickly. And I think that this is, this is a nothing, but I would say a good sign that they're doing things to my knowledge to be the right way. And where you're, you're taking the time. And if you hit delays, you hit delays and you know, you just have to push on uh, with your own pace and your own satisfaction with the program. And I think that, uh, that this is a sign of that. So I'm, you know, it's bummed that I'm not going to see him at Portimao uh, on the TV uh, and hopefully at Spa, but I'm I'm excited to see what they can do once they start getting onto the uh, public roads in France. So, um, so to serves them right for blocking everyone on Twitter. <laughs> ah, see, jokes on him. I don't have a Twitter account, so I just uh, say the public <laughs> side and uh, and read it from there. But yeah, it's uh, <laughs> it'll be interesting to see, and maybe that's for a good thing too for him. If he was at the prologue, maybe he would be ticking half the paddock off too <laughs> too quickly anyway. If they'd be looking at his car, so maybe. <laughs> Uh, taking some time to get everything right, and so that he's he feels comfortable with the car it might be better for <laughs> some of his discussions at the, during in the paddock during the race weekend. So, uh, <laughs> but yeah, uh, and then lastly, just as a FYI, um, that both Portimao and Spa rounds are going to be held behind closed doors. So due to COVID concerns, uh, both the Portugal round and uh, and the Belgium rounds of uh, first two rounds of the WC Championship in 2021 are going to be behind closed doors, not allowing uh, fans. Um, as a last bit for this episode, Ollie, what do you think um, in terms of the projections for this? Do you, do you see any any fans, any spectators at a WEC round this year? I do see yes. Um, it, it might be more weighted to the back end of the, the year um, because the, you know the, there's still time needed to get these vaccines out. Uh, into the general population um, uh, and also um, get these numbers down for infection rates and things like that. But anything can happen. Mm. It's tough to forecast, obviously. Yeah. Um, but on the other hand as well, in terms of, of financial 
reason. The ACO at the moment, they really need uh, that ticket money for yep. the 24 hours of Le Mans. You know, 200,000 people usually uh, pre-COVID. That's a lot of money um, that they have been missing out mm. on for a while now um, across their their series, but, but also at the 24 hours of Le Mans. Um, may we see them delay it again to September? I think it's highly possible um, to be able to maximise the amount of people that they can get through those gates. Mm. Um, uh, I wouldn't buy those plane tickets just yet, mm. Austin, uh, for uh, <laughs> June. Um, I'd wait out just a little bit longer um, because things might still change. Um, I think they might move the calendar around a little bit to make sure that they can get those people in um, with those tickets in to see those uh, those cars go round and round. Excellent point with the moving potential of the mall. I didn't really think of that. I kind of thought it was, um, you know, I, I guess just not not thinking that they couldn't move it, but just it was like, well, they, they, they already moved it already last year, so they, I don't think they're going to try to move it this year. But I think you're right. I think that that is a huge, huge factor for the ACO to want to try to, if if there is that inkling that maybe local authorities will allow then instead of June, um, you know, some fan attendance, maybe not full or, you know, whatever. There, I think that's... They want that's, to do it that yeah, way. Yes. The, because the, the whole region... Um, benefits hmm. people are coming from all over the world hundreds of thousands of people you know it 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 props up the whole region the economy of the region and you know the politicians will need this to happen not the cars going round and round but the people turning up hmm. because they bring their money and the the people in that region want that money to be spent in and around that area. Yeah, they don't just spend it at the track. They do food. not just spend it at that track. <laughs> sure. Man. I And again, I, like you said, this is... Uh, I will make sure not to be uh, to solidifying too many plans just yet. Um, but I, I, I just... I do hope that they can they can get to a point where um, that there can be some, some form of fan attendance so that you, you can get some fan interaction with maybe the tail ends of these rounds, especially at Le Mans. I think that that's, that is absolutely something that they're going to try. And if they can try to find a way to do it, that they own do it. And I mean, with how vaccine rollouts are going in the next two months with this, this could be, this could be a lot better of a scenario that could be hitting the ACO to maybe move this back a bit. Um, or it might be to the point where that you do have local authorities that are, are much more keen to it because they have their own local vaccination rates are higher or, or whatnot. So um, you could almost even see something where uh, there could be a, a vaccine um, not, almost requirement for some of this stuff and see if that works. Uh, so there's a lot of wrinkles that could potentially come from this uh, in the future. So we'll just have to keep our eyes and ears open for any updates that come that way. So, Ollie, I really appreciate you uh, you taking time to uh, hang out with me, uh, get this uh, update for endurance racing kind of squared away. There's been so much stuff going on that I felt like it was it was it was necessary to kind of get uh, get down to the nuts and bolts with some of this stuff, and not even talk about some of the races and series that have literally started and ended by the time uh, uh, before from this podcast uh, episode from the last one. So we'll save that for, uh, for floody Michael and uh, for Kiwi Chris. 
uh, to talk about the Asian Lamont series and probably give them to force them to talk about day 2024, even though both of those down under people have no idea what happened through that. But I think I'll listen to that just for my entertainment to, <laughs> to hear them try to uh, talk about the IMSA race that happened almost two months ago. But uh, that'll be for the next uh, podcast episode. But I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. And uh, Ali, I really appreciate you coming out, man. And uh, hopefully we'll talk to you soon. Thank you. This news has been exciting, and hopefully there's more to come. Yeah, absolutely. And hey, if we get another LMH uh, announcement, uh, we'll be right back here to discuss that. <laughs> Fingers oh, crossed. Bet. All right, everyone, uh, you guys have a great rest of your day, and enjoy enjoy the weather as it improves. Stay safe out there, and GRO1 Gazoo!